You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. I thank the Lord for uh, worship songs and teams that lead us into thoughts like this and emotion like this that takes us into the eternal God. You'll notice in the insert in your bulletin, the blue piece of paper, a quote from John Stott in a book he's written called God's New Society which says, history is neither meaningless nor purposeless. It is moving towards a glorious goal. We need to see time in the light of eternity and our present privileges and obligations in the light of our past election and future perfection. Then, if we shared in the apostle's perspective, we could also share his praise. For doctrine leads to doxology as well as to duty. Life would become worship and we would bless God constantly for having blessed us so richly in Christ. We have this privilege of sharing together again this morning in the book of Ephesians, and I would ask you to turn to it with me. Uh, We're going to be looking further into this long sentence that Paul writes at the beginning of his letter to the church at Ephesus. And uh, it starts in verse 3, and it goes all the way to verse 14 without taking a breath even though in our English language uh, Bibles we have a few sentences in there. Would you join me in standing and listening to God's Word? Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll begin with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. May God bless His word. You may be seated. Perhaps we would do well to begin our message by thinking about where Paul is when he's writing these words. He is actually chained uh, to a a Roman soldier. He's in Rome and he's, uh, he's probably under house arrest. He's not in a prison cell, but he is under guard and uh, Roman soldiers all the time with him, chained to him wrist to wrist. And, and uh, that's where Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon as well. And under that kind of circumstance and confinement, you can imagine that maybe many thoughts were going through the Apostle Paul's mind. He probably had many concerns of burdens for the churches that he was caring for and wondered 
how they were doing. He had thoughts about his own future, whether he'd ever get out of these stocks and, and able to travel and see somebody else and, and visit the churches. <clears throat> he wondered uh, probably a lot about his own well-being. Tradition tells us that the Apostle Paul was beheaded under the Emperor Nero during the mid-60s A.D. Um, we're not certain of that. Perhaps in his final years, though, um, he was earnest about getting some of these letters written so that people would be hearing more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The interesting thing for me is that in the middle of such circumstance that he was facing, you would think that maybe he would talk a little bit about uh, himself, ask for more prayer or something like that, but he begins the letter of Ephesians, and he's not focused in the here and now of the circumstances that he's facing. In fact, he begins the letter by pointing them to the eternity past when they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and eternity future when God in His glory is waiting for every child that He has bought with His Son's blood and He's going to give them an inheritance that is found in His Son. And it's just incredible that Paul is not too worried about the here and now in his letter. He's talking about incredibly vast things of eternity and of salvation. And, and as we've been talking about, the Paul's intent in doing so is to, to solidify and determine clearly just how secure the believer who trusts in Jesus Christ is. To point to the fact that our security does not come from my experience of conversion in the here and now or my performance as a Christian in strutting it out on this earth in the here and now or my knowledge of the Bible and of theology and God in the here and now, but rather my security comes from much broader and deeper wells and that's from eternity past and all the way to eternity future so that my here and now is, is in ballast and supported and founded upon something absolutely unbelievable, incredible. All the privileges that are ours are ours because of Jesus Christ and being included in Him way back when we were not even born. Just as Paul has used the language of adoption as we looked at the first half of this long sentence in verse 5, so also he uses the language now of inheritance as we continue on in verse 9 to describe the inheritance that is waiting for us. It's a natural progression, isn't it? If there's an adoption, then there's also going to likely be an heir. At, at the end of that adoption, and when, when uh, parents die, there's going to be some kind of an inheritance for that adopted child. And that's what Paul is talking about here. God has included those adopted in Christ Jesus in the inheritance that is found in Christ Jesus as well. Part of the key to this passage of Scripture, I think, is in unpacking what verse 9 means by the mystery of his will. The word mystery is used six times by Paul in the, in the letter to Ephesus, and uh, there's seven times that the word will is used. <clears throat> and of those seven, four of them are in the passage that we just read. Four of the seven times that the word will is used, of God's will. In Jewish literature, a mystery was actually something that was kept hidden or secret, and in Jewish understanding, it would only be made known at the very end of the age, at the very end of time, it would be made known. But in Paul's understanding, he took the same word, and he would use it as that which has been made known through Jesus Christ coming, the mystery that has been made known. 
All the prophets of the Old Testament stood on their tiptoes, searched intently into the law and the prophets, trying to figure out just what it was that, that was being waiting for, what this Messiah figure was all about, and who, how God was going to show up and save his people. Angels, it says in Scripture, angels long to look into these things. And here we are on the other side of history, on the other side of the Christ event, the cross, and here we are looking back at it, and the mystery has been made known. It's been revealed. Sinclair Ferguson uses an illustration in one of his commentaries of the idea of, of um, scaffolding, which is built around a statue or a sculpture or a building that's being built. And the scaffolding has this canvas that you can't see. Passers-by can only see scaffolding <clears throat> because something like a masterpiece is being built. And then finally, when it's done, the scaffolding is torn down and discarded and everybody can behold what has been built. That's what's happening in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the, from the seed of Abraham, God is preparing the Messiah. God is preparing the way of salvation. He is mastering it, refining it, working on, and then Christ comes upon the scene in the New Testament pages. The scaffolding is torn down. It's no longer needed. It's no longer good for anything because now the Son of God has come and has been revealed. And so uh, God the Father makes the Son known, revealed, and then the Son of God makes the Father known, and revealed. And that's the way that the Scriptures unpack it. I think in understanding the passage that's before us, though, perhaps one way of helping to make it more clear in our minds is to, to understand the word mystery and will, those two key words from verse 9, to understand these two words with the practice of our own writing of a will, as many of you have. Uh, the writing of wills I'm not saying that this practice was in Paul's mind when he was penning the words of Ephesians, but I am saying that it might come in handy and helpful to us in understanding some of the concepts that Paul is unpacking. <clears throat> and so in verse 9, it says that he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. In other words, he let you into the secret of his will. He let you in to the secret of His will. How many of you have been in a will? How many of you, put up your hand, if you've received an inheritance and you've been part of a will? Raise the hand. Okay. Got a younger crowd here. Uh, but this is the idea here. This is the idea. God had a will. God had a perfect will in eternity past. And so in verse 9 it says that He made known the mystery of His will that he purposed in Christ, he let you into the mystery of his will. Sorry, I should go back to verse 5. Verse 5 says that he adopted us into his family because it was in accordance with his pleasure and will. In other words, that before he, you were even known, before you were adopted, he already wrote you in to his will. And then he adopted you. What love is that? And then he made known the mystery of his will. In other words, oftentimes nobody knows what the will says until after everything's done and then somebody opens the will and finds out what's in there. Well, God makes known to you the mystery of his will because he included you in Christ. And then in verse 11 it says that he made us heirs according to the purpose of his will. So he included you in his will. 
He made known the mystery of his will. It was no secret that you were there. And then finally, he shared his inheritance. He made you an heir of his will. He made you an an heir to the things that are in Christ Jesus. Well, we're going to unpack these ideas in three ways, as you can see in the blue outline, uh, the blue piece of paper. First of all, being chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the, the, the progression that I'm going to describe that Paul uses in this scripture, this same progression is the progression that every one of us who have come to Christ has followed. And so let's take a look at how it does, is that, that God makes known to us the mystery of His will. First of all, you were chosen, according to verse 11, you were chosen in verse 11, it says, in Him you were also chosen. The footnote, if you have a New International Version, is a more clear rendering of what it says. At the bottom you'll see under verse 11 that it says, you were made heirs. That's a more accurate. You, you obtained an inheritance. God had predestined you for an inheritance and the inheritance for you. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, how God keeps an inheritance kept safe for you and how he keeps you safe for the inheritance. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Where is it? Kept in heaven for you. So he's keeping the inheritance for you, and now he goes on to say that he's going to keep you for the inheritance. For you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Incredible what God has done for those that he is, has as his own children. So again, we cannot separate here this idea of predestination, election, and inheritance from the concept of adoption and family and inheritance and wills. Pat and I are just now renewing our will. We haven't renewed it for many several years. Before we went to the mission field, the children were small. Circumstances have changed. Kids have grown up. It's time to change this will. Who will we designate to receive an inheritance in that will? It's obvious that it's, it's logical, isn't it? As soon as you start thinking about wills, you start thinking about your children, natural children, adopted children, whatever they may be. And that's what God is teaching here through His Word. A will is essentially predestining your offspring to receive what you want to leave them and predestining your possessions to be left in the hands of who you want to have them. It's a simple concept, isn't it? God, in, in similar fashion, did the same thing. He predesignated who would be his heirs according to the plans and purposes of his perfect will. In so doing, he then predesignated what it was that they would receive, you see. Who and what is being spoken of in this passage? And the amazing thing is, is that anything that God the Father ever gives, anything that God the Father ever leaves, anything that God the Father ever plans can never be separated from God's one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, whom He has made, according to Hebrews 1-2, heir of all things. Easy will, isn't it? Shouldn't cost a lawyer too much money for this one. It's an easy will. He has left Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, as an heir of all things. 
So where does that leave us who've been adopted into his family? Well, Paul makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. He says, in him we were made heirs. In him we were made heirs. There's nothing that God ever does for you, gives to you, blesses you with, promises you in, that he doesn't do it through and in his son Jesus Christ. That's why he must have the supremacy in all things. That's why we talk about Jesus so much. That's why we Christians are fanatics about Jesus, because we've got nothing apart from him. It's all about him. And so Paul says that in him we were made heirs. Why? Verse 12, so that we might be who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Paul always answers why questions with those kinds of answers. You know, three times, three times in this passage. Why were you adopted? Verse 5, for the praise of his glorious grace. Why, were you gonna, why are you going to receive an inheritance? For the praise of his glorious grace. Any other dumb questions? <laughs> it's kind of like Paul, every river runs back to the glory of God. Everything is for the praise of Jesus and his glorious grace through the Father. It's, it's all going back. It's not because we were just cute little orphans that wanted to get adopted. Or that we were so poor we needed an inheritance. No, he just did it for the praise of his glorious grace. And we are recipients of that incredible love and grace. Secondly, not only were we chosen by the Father, but we were redeemed by the Son. Verse 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory that we were included in Christ. We heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and then we believed, it says. It's important to see that Paul is emphasizing here the substance of saving faith. Really important. What is saving faith all about? There's a danger in our age that we have reduced faith, saving faith, to the idea of believing. So in other words, it's a mental consent kind of form. You get a sheet of paper with a bunch of little squares and statements beside it, propositional truth. You check them all off and you say, yeah, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that. And then at the end of it you say, well, I guess I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus. And that's only half of the concept of faith in the New Testament because the other half that completes the understanding of faith in the New Testament is besides believing, you trust in Christ. Both of them have to go hand in hand. Trusting in Christ. Faith is both believing in Christ and trusting in Christ. There are many people today that call themselves Christians because they believe the right stuff, but they are not stepping out to trust in Christ. Faith in Christ is like a marriage covenant. Uh, this is what Paul's going to talk about in Ephesians chapter 5 as we get there this spring. It's a marriage covenant. Have you ever heard the acronym? Help, help me out. The first service didn't do so well in this, okay? See if you're any better at this. So, so the acronym of faith, F-A-I-T-H. Anybody got an acronym of what that means, it stands for? Anybody? I'll, I'll give you the first word, forsaking all I trust Him. Right. I'll give you a little bit better grade than the first service, okay? Some of you probably, I can see some that were in the first service. 
forsaking all, I trust Him. That's, that's faith, isn't it? Because you see, what happens at a wedding? When a wedding takes place, a, a couple of young people or old come down the aisle and they stand before a congregation of loved ones and, and they're saying to God and to that people, forsaking all others, I am going to trust you and I'm going to be faithful to you. And that's what God has done in Jesus Christ. And that's what we do if we're going to become His own. We're saying, we'll forsake all. We're, we're, all our eggs are in your basket, Jesus. It's, if you're not real and if you're not true, then we, we are really out to lunch. And that's why this idea in verse 12 is, is clear that we are hoping beforehand. We don't have the full inheritance. We don't know that He's going to save our souls for eternity and not send us into judgment. We don't have that, but we have Faith and hope, future grace will happen. We're going to receive that and we're counting on Him. Forsaking all, I trust Him. And so what is being taught in these verses is that those whom God, now follow the progression, those whom God has chosen, God has adopted. And those whom God has adopted, it says in verses 12 and 13, hear the word of truth. They hear the word of truth, and having heard, they believed. And having believed, they trusted in Christ. That's where we've gotten so far. We were chosen by God. Because we were chosen, He adopted us into His family and made us heirs. Because of that, we heard the word of truth. And when we heard, we believed. And when we believed, we also trusted in Christ. And now the next step is, final step, Thirdly, we were then sealed by the Holy Spirit. After believing, God marks each one of His children with a seal. In the ancient world, this was a common practice. Cattle were given a, a brand to identify who they belonged to. Slaves were marked with a seal of ownership. Letters were sealed with hot wax and the signet ring of a dignitary that sent it. And so Paul employs this language and he says that the believer is marked with a seal, and that seal is actually God Himself, the Spirit, who dwells within, and the Holy Spirit leaves His mark on every Christian. He leaves His mark. If you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit leaves His mark on you, and the mark is a guarantee of the inheritance that is yet to come. And that word in verse 14 used of that full inheritance, is Araban. It was used in the trade industry at the time. A buyer would, would give a down payment, a certain first deposit of money, a pledge. And that was the intent that secured legal claim to that possession that you were buying. That Araban was the down payment. The Holy Spirit is the down payment in the believer's life that the whole inheritance is yet to come. God promised it and gave himself as the down payment to secure that. In modern Greek, if you were to go to Greece today, in modern Greek, not the Koine Greek of the New Testament, but modern Greek, the same word is used of an engagement ring. An engagement ring is a young man giving a ring to a young woman saying, I am pledging that, that this is, is going to say that I'm going to marry you. I am going to follow through on my commitment. The Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring to the church, His bride, saying that I will return 
And when I return, I will gather my bride, and we will together go and, and enjoy this marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven that the book of Revelation speaks of. And so the Holy Spirit, then, is, is He who creates the holy life in you, and, and that's your guarantee. You see, your security, your assurance, your guarantee that you really do belong to God is found in the Holy Spirit's changing of your life, the Holy Spirit's transformation. So every time you take your spiritual gift that God the Spirit gave you, whether it's teaching or preaching or serving or helps or administration or whatever it might be, you take your spiritual gift out and you go and serve God and His church and this kingdom on earth, however you choose. Every time you use the spiritual gift, you are reminded who you belong to, and what is waiting for you one day in that full inheritance. Every time that you do not grieve the Holy Spirit, but instead are filled with the Holy Spirit, and out of you comes edifying language and submissive spirit and, and the willingness to be taught and so on. Every time that happens in you, you are reminded who you belong to and what God has waiting for you. Every time that you choose to manifest the Holy Spirit's fruit in you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all those things, every time you choose that you're going to live out of that well instead of the selfism that you're, you're sort of hardwired to live out of, every time that happens, you're reminded who you belong to and what this great inheritance is that's waiting for you in Christ. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. What does it say in Ephesians chapter 4 and beginning in verse 29? It says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That word benefit is the idea of it ministers grace to those who listen. And then in verse 30 it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You see, if you're not going to grieve the Holy Spirit, then there's going to be these things characterizing your life. And these things will also characterize our fellowship. Because, you see, union with Jesus Christ results in communion with the saints, doesn't it? And if you're going to have communion with the saints, then you have to have the Holy Spirit's filling, and you can't grieve Him. You can't be bitter. You can't be at each other. You can't hold on to grudge. You can't not forgive your, your friend, your wife, your child, your, your brother in Christ or sister. You, you've got to get past that, or you're grieving the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit was given to you as a deposit guaranteeing your whole inheritance. So you can go to God and you can say, Lord, I ask you to fill up in me what I can't fill up for myself. This morning as we get ready to gather around this table, we are often encouraged to go into that inner chamber and have this self-analysis between me and Jesus I'm asking you to do that, but I'm asking you to do more than that. I'm asking you to look around. I'm asking you to look around in your family and in your church and in your friendships and, and see that, that you're not grieving the Holy Spirit somewhere out there. 
See that, that you're, you're, you're in good relationship, that you're enjoying communion with the saints. I'm going to ask those that are going to be leading in the Lord's Supper and the worship team to come forward to join me at the front.